Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I am going to be speaking with Dr. Mahadeo Sukai. Uh, Dr. Sukai is the Director of Research Accessibility Officer at the CNIB. He's also an Assistant Professor at uh, Queen's University, which is um, actually where I went to school, and he wouldn't have known that before we were saying this right now, uh, and it holds a number of other titles. So, uh, Dr. Sukai, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Sean. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thanks for joining. Um, so I alluded to this uh, in our little discussion before we started recording, and it's a que- I usually send guests questions ahead of time just as guideposts, but this is something I wanted to bring up because you, are, you have already impacted my life and you don't even realize it, um, and it was there's a little blurb in your email signature um, that uh, I don't remember a word for word in front of me, but it was something to, to the tune of um, I aspire to and respect a, a, a work-life balance. Uh, so I don't expect, you know, a, a reply to this, you know, in some uh, outside of working hours. Can you just comment on that? Um, why that's in your email signature and um, or if maybe the origins of that? I appropriated it actually from a colleague of mine at the University of Saskatchewan College of Medicine. Um, They had it in their email signature and it it struck me as something that was, um, that was very, very important to keep in mind. And and I actually started to put that in my signature pre pandemic and uh, it turned out to be absolutely prescient. Um, I I started to include this in my SIG as of December of 2019 and, and I put it in, because I thought that it was, it was necessary to just say to people, you know what, um, there's so many emails that come in from multiple time zones across the world sometimes. And uh, some of us work nine to five, some of us work eight to four, some of us work seven to three, some of us work 10 to six. I tend to flex my day a little bit more than that. Um, and so there will be a time where I'm in front of my computer to deal with emails or on my phone to deal with emails, but I wanted people to appreciate and respect that, that there's, there's boundaries, right? We don't, have to, uh, we don't have to reply to an email instantly. And, and this message, when, when I saw it in my colleagues uh, in, my colleagues in uh, emails, I, I said to them after I digested it for a day or so, you know, do you mind if I, I appropriate that? And, and they said, no, absolutely, feel free because I hope it goes viral. And so I started to use it. And it is going viral. I've had people say to me, much the same as, as you just did, Sean, it, it's, it, it's, it's a resonant note and some have stolen it without asking permission, which is totally fine. That's what going viral means. And some of us have, um, have asked permission and, and I've said, it's not really mine to give permission of. I, I did get permission to use it from the person I took it from, but I'm going to pay it forward and feel free. No, it's very cool. And, and what I found unique about that, I mean, we've heard before, oh, you know, well, you need you know, work-life balance, but it was the it was the respect part because I mean, we all in, in some ways, or at least tell ourselves that we aspire to a work-life balance, but it was more the, you know, I respect the work-life balance too. And I'm thinking, ha, I never really thought of that. Like, you know, I, sometimes at nighttime kids are in bed and uh, you know, my, my wife is, is uh, going for a workout or doing whatever. And I'm like, oh, I'll just sit down and, you know, crank out some emails at, at 10, 10 o'clock at night and never thought about just, the other end of that thinking like, oh, hey, if people were wondering, why is he sitting at 10 o'clock at right? Why is he just right at me at nine in the morning? So, but you don't have uh, to hit send on the email so that it goes out at 10 o'clock yeah. at night. And, and, and I mean, it depends on, on which uh, email client you have. So, so uh, CNIB is an Office 365 environment. And, and one of the interesting things about Outlook is it allows you to, to delay send your email. Um, and so I, I'll do the same thing that you'll do. I'll, I'll sit down and I'll, I'll reply to emails. It's 1030 at night. Um, because you know it, it's it's great to kind of get, get them out of the way and deal with them or you wake up at five o'clock in the morning and you do it and sometimes you just don't want to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and and so so if it's easier to sit down at 10 30 at night and, and deal with the emails then then you do that and then you hit um you you hit you hit send but it's a delayed send so i i do this and i do this with emails on the weekend as well i will hit send so that the emails will go out uh, first thing business hours, the next business day. So if I'm sending emails on a Saturday, they go out Monday morning at 8 a.m. If I send emails on a Monday night, they go out Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. You know, so there's a program that used to, they, I don't know if it still exists, called Boomerang for, for Gmail, which is the same concept where you could schedule your emails to send at certain times. 
So I did that in the past to make it look like I was working really early, really early from the night before, you know, at seven, eight o'clock and write these emails and have them go out at, you know, like five forty-six in the morning, make it look like I was working really early. And, but in fact, I was in bed, but uh, anyhow, that's, that's a different story. Um, so you uh, have the title um, uh, with many titles. One is uh, the first congenitally blind biomedical researcher uh, I think in the world, um, uh, at least that uh, uh, my sources uh, know of, uh, you hold a PhD in cancer genetics uh, from the University of Toronto. I was hoping first you could comment uh, a little bit on the cause of your congenital blindness. I was born with cataracts. Really? Yes. And, I didn't know. I didn't, so, I did not know. Uh, I, I'm not sure you can Google that part of my background. <laughs> No, no, it just says at first congenitally blind. No, no. So, so I was, I was born with cataracts. I also wasn't born here. I was born, I was born in the Caribbean. Um, And the thing is that, that lots of kids are born with cataracts rather more so than you might think. I mean, it is, it is pretty rare, but at the end of the day, there's, there's, you know, millions of kids born each day. And and so, you know, some um, proportion of that number is always going to be born with, with cataracts. So, um, but I was born with cataracts and I was born at a period of time where, um, and in a part of the world where um, sort of the, the perinatal diagnosis of uh, cataracts or retinoblastoma, both of which require shining the, the flashlight into the eye, they weren't done. Um, not in that space, not in that time. Um, and so my diagnosis wasn't actually picked up until I was 10 months old, um, by which point, of course, the neural pathways around focus and tracking and things like this are already laid down in your visual cortex and you can't undo that. Um, and so, so when my lenses were finally removed, there, 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 was a, um, there was a neural residue, if you will, left behind such that although, although I can see, I can't track, I can't focus and, and there's a few other things that I, I can't do. And, and at the end of the day, I am legally blind and that's with my glasses on. Um, without my glasses on, you can't actually measure what I can or can't see because I, I don't, I, I can't do, uh, I can't do the eye chart. I can't do the Snellen chart. So, um, so, so that's, that's the way it's been for how many every years, right? Um, uh, because you Googled me, you could probably figure out when I was born. Um, but, uh, but it, it, it's, it's interesting because people, people are sort of like, well, you know, you had cataracts, why didn't you just get implants? And implants weren't necessarily a choice at that point in time. Um, and they certainly were not a choice in the country I was born in. Um, and I, I had cataract surgery done in the United Kingdom and, and uh, the, the pediatric ophthalmologist actually gave my parents a choice and, say, and, and they said, you can give him implants the, or you can do laser surgery. The problem is that, that the success of these techniques in children at this point in time is very low. And so you could do it, but odds are you'd have to you'd have to continually go in and do additional things. And, and so uh, is that something that you want for your kid? And they said, no. Um, and uh, in retrospect, you know, I, I realized that was actually a very good decision that they made. Um, better to go with, with the option of sort of safety and conservatism, given that we didn't live in the UK, we lived in the Caribbean. And so, so having to either go back and forth or, or have more advanced routine care in, in a different part of the world than, than you're supposed to live in is problematic at best. So, um, so, so that ended up leading to the, the sort of suite of, of, um, of associated visual conditions to my, my congenital cataract. Okay, so tell me the story, please, from which story? Well, there's so many. I know that from from the the journey that you know from that ten month old who, uh, you know, uh, who went to the UK to the you know twenty something that finished the PhD at um, in cancer genetics. Just along the way, you know, were there any major challenges? Um, which I, I'm assuming there were. Um, Lots there... of entertaining stuff. Yeah. Yes. Well, well, um, and and the, the thing is, I, I say entertaining because yeah. you can you can retrospectively think on these things and and turn them into jokes and turn them into stories. And um, the problem is that life is not that linear, right? Um, no, of course. Of and course. and yeah, yeah, yeah. the the joke appears afterward. It doesn't appear as you're living it. That's um, true. And That's and true. so although we might all live a joke, we none of us realize this until after the fact. Um, and, and so, so, you know, um, 
I was born in Guyana, um, which is on the continent of South America, for those who don't know, but, but it, it's culturally part of the Caribbean. Um, and, uh, and grew up on the islands of Jamaica and Barbados before um, my family emigrated to Canada when I was uh, 10 and three quarters, almost 11. Um, and, and the thing is that, that when I was diagnosed, we were in Guyana, um, and the ophthalmologists in Guyana were the ones who diagnosed me. And, and one of them offered a treatment uh, protocol where he said he would take multiple surgeries to go in and cut out slivers of the lens and pull them out one at a time. And by the time that's done, the, the, um, there would be so much scarring and the surface of the eyeball would be destroyed. I'd be totally blind no matter what. Um, that was a legitimate ophthalmologist choice in 1979, apparently. Um, there was another ophthalmologist who, who turned around and said, well, you know, he's blind, we can't do anything. So just consign him to an institution or, or you know, basically have him be a, a street corner seller in, in Guyana kind of thing. Um, neither of those options my parents took seriously. Um, and so they went hunting for other options. And, and I mean, you think about it, right? You're, you're in a developing country, um, you know, in a country where at that point in time, inflation was, was ultimately gonna end up with one Guyanese dollar equal to 200 US dollars. Um, or about 150 Canadian, and, and that's today. And, and 50 years ago, in the early part of the 1970s, it was like one Guyanese to maybe two or three US. And, and then inflation took off, and the country lived with a socialist dictatorship until 1992. And so inflation kind of went into the pits the whole time. Um, and and so, so money was losing currency left and right. Like money was getting devalued left and right. And, and my parents made this choice to expend a massive amount of resources um, to go get an, uh, an opinion from outside, uh, an international opinion, an opinion in the United Kingdom. And, and so we had family in the UK and, and they were able to help with some of that, but that, that's still a massive amount of time, massive amount of money, massive amount of, um, of, of logistical expense, right? Um, not to mention the fracturing of the family because you know my mother went with me and, and left the other kids with my dad. And, and so, so there, was, there was a sundering for months on end. Um, and so, so my surgeries happened when I was about 16 or 17 months old. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, ultimately after staying in the UK for, for six or eight months or something like that, we came back to Guyana. But now, now you've got a toddler um, who is, who's never seen before in his life, right? Um, except for light sensation and, and light and shadow. And, and then this toddler is starting to grow up and, and, figuring out how to go to school and all sorts of things like that. Um, and, and so, so when we emigrated, we, we were emigrating in search of better education for all of us, but particularly better education and better pediatric ophthalmology for me. Um, and, you know, we stayed in Jamaica for a few months. We went to Barbados. When we were in Barbados, the, the public school system basically was, was of the opinion that they didn't want a blind kid in school. That wasn't, that wasn't a thing. Um, and so I had to be homeschooled until we could find a private school and then another private school. Um, and, and so, so at no point in time that I actually have the kind of education that one would consider to be, um, sort of um, public education, sort of, sort of the education that, that every child would be expected to be exposed to between the ages of four and 14. Um, never had it, don't know what it looks like, don't know what it feels like, never experienced it. Um, and, and in not experiencing it, it actually meant I was jumped ahead. So, so by the time we emigrated from um, Barbados to Toronto in Ontario, Canada, um, I was 10 and due to go into the Barbadian equivalent of grade nine, what, what was called form three um, in the British school system. Um, and coming here, you might imagine that, that one doesn't put a 10 year old in grade nine. Um, and in fact, what I found out was, was because I didn't have any French facility, not growing up with French on the island of Barbados, um, they actually hold you back by a year, uh, at least they would have in the Toronto District School Board uh, of, of that generation. Um, and so I was supposed to go into grade four, which I thought was unconscionable because I didn't particularly want to learn how to do multiplication in grade four because I'd already learned that like six years before. Um, That's a wild difference. <laughs> so, so I felt I would have been bored out of my mind. Um, yeah. And I, I pointed this out to my parents and they said, yes, but these are the rules of this new country that we live in. And, and I more or less said, screw the rules. And if I don't get into grade nine, I'm going back to Barbados by myself. Um, and, and that actually is a true story. I, I did actually say that. Um, that's not a joke. Um, and, and so 
there, there was some pushing and shoving, which is how I would characterize it. And I ended up in grade nine um, at the age of 10. And, and so, so these were the days of OAC and, and I, I didn't think to push the system further and, and, and try to do high school in four or even three years. So, so I finished OAC when I was 15 and entered university when I was 15. Um, and, and I'm gonna loop back a bit and, and say to you that, that, um, that from the age of four, I've always wanted to be a scientist. And at first, I actually wanted to be an astronomer. Um, and and what, what really did it was, was a Chelsea Bonstill painting um, in 1944, 1945, of, of what we thought the surface of Saturn's largest moon, Titan, looked like at that point in time before we knew it had a much thicker atmosphere or much denser atmosphere than, than, um, than we thought it did then. Um, and, and it was such a beautiful painting, so high contrast, so vivid. And, and you know, my, my perspective is if that is science, I want to do that for the rest of my life. Um, and and I, I was voracious, any science, all science, I ate it up, right? Um, and, and so although astronomy was my first love, it was by no means my, my, only, um, my only point of focus in, in the sciences. And so, um, you know, in going into high school in, um, in, and going into grade nine, I, I kept that love of sciences going. Um, and it was, it was one of those things where, because, because my grades were what they were, nobody could really say, well, you can't do science because you're blind. Uh, nobody said that in Barbados to me. Nobody said that in Guyana to me. But to be fair, nobody also said I could do science. Right. And, and so, so, so people will say to me, well, you never had any itinerant teachers. You never had any educational assistance. Um, you know, how did you get by? And, and, and the funny thing about authority, Sean, is um, authority is, is both a positive and a negative. Authority can, can show you a path, but authority can also block you from paths if they don't think you can do something. Um, and and I, I never had anybody, including my parents, uh, who said, you can't do this thing that you want to do. Um, and so it never entered into my consciousness until I actually met people here on Canadian soil um, who, who were sort of like, are you sure you want to do this? Did, did, it even, did it even occur to me that it was possible to not do the thing that was in my head, right? Um, because I, I'd wanted to do it since I was four and, and nobody had said, no, you can't. I, I think my parents were humoring me. I don't think they, they knew how far I could go. Um, I don't think they knew how to get me there, um, but they never said, no, we can't do that. They didn't helicopter that way, right? Um, I mean, this is, this is the same set of parents who said, okay, we're going to teach you how to ride a bike, get on a bike without training wheels and go ride the bike. And if you fall down, you fall down too bad. Um, that's by the way, not the greatest way to learn how to ride a bike. I, I didn't ever <laughs> learn how to ride a bike because I didn't like falling down and, and bruising my knees that way. Um, and, and so, so that mentality carried over to, to education. It's like, you're going to get an education. Education is important. You're going to do, you're going to do an education. You're going to learn stuff. And, and if at the end of all the learning of the stuff, science is what you want to do, and we can figure out how the heck to get you to do it, then okay, fine. Um, but there was nobody there to say, this is how you do it. There was also nobody there to say, this is not something you should do. Um, and one of the really interesting things that I learned after I started to take an interest in the accessibility of science education um, is that lots of people actually tell students with disabilities, you can't do that. And lots of people will tell students with disabilities, well, you, you can't do, or, or students with vision loss, or you can't do science, you know, do Braille instead, or you can't do science, do, um, you know, some other, I'm going to use the term that was used in, in university with me, and it's going to come across as a little bit pejorative, uh, basket weaving instead, right? Um, but nobody ever said that to me because I, I was never in any of those situations where any of that was possible. When, when I got into grade nine and, and my parents were asked, well, what kind of special education do you want for your son? Their answer was special education. What are you talking about? We've never had special education. He's never needed special education. Why would you give him a special education? Um, yeah, yeah. And, and again, it comes down to if you don't have something um, and you don't know its benefits, you also don't have something and don't know its curse. Um, and so, so I, I, never, I never had the opportunity to interact with a system that is actually set up to benefit students with all kinds of learning needs. Um, and it's a great system, but it's just not a system that I interacted with. I interacted with special ed because they had to give me my large print exams, right? These, these were the days where you'd blow up exams on a photocopier, right? You wouldn't bother printing things out large 
um, using a dot matrix printer or anything like that, you blow up things on a photocopier and they'd be blown up like 150% or whatever. Um, and, and, and so, so I'd get my large print exams. I'd get my extra time. Not that I ever used it. Um, but, but I'd, I'd have it. And that was all I didn't need an EA. I didn't want an EA. I didn't consider an EA. Um, and, and I didn't actually, I didn't have my classes in a special ed kind of room. And, and I know, I know many other people who have had that experience and it's been beneficial to them. Um, but by not having the experience growing up, um, what ends up happening is your attitudes toward all of this get formed at a, at a young age and they get informed by, by your parents' attitudes toward things. And so, so if you don't have access to supports, it's like you feel like you don't want them or you don't need them because they would have been really beneficial when you were younger, but you didn't have them. So it's sort of like, well, screw them now, right? Kind of thing. You, you, don't, you don't want them because you don't really see the point. Um, so so when, I, when I started my undergrad, I was 15 and I started in astronomy because that still was my first love. Um, then I met a computer science instructor who frankly couldn't <clears throat> teach computer science. Um, and, and then something happened that in, in retrospect, I kind of sort of regret, but kind of sort of don't. Um, and and uh, I regret letting somebody who couldn't teach dictate my choice of what to study. Um, and and so, so it wasn't that I couldn't do computer science because you need computer science and coding to do physics and astronomy. It wasn't that I couldn't do it. It's that I, I absolutely loathed the learning environment that I was in. And so I chose to get out of that learning environment. Um, and, and in retrospect, that was an interesting choice to make because I went from astronomy to molecular biology. I went from the study of the very big to the study of the very small, and I got far away from computer science, um, which is ironic because at the end of the day, I ended up in, in um, you know, cancer genomics and, and personalized medicine and, and, um, and bioinformatics. And, and I mean, I had to learn how to code. <laughs> so, so this is actually why I regret not learning how to code when I was 15, <laughs> when it would have been a lot easier to learn how to code. Um, but you know, I, I made I made a choice based on the information available to me at the time. So I, so I went into molecular biology, um, and because I had had no prior exposure to molecular biology, everyone was sort of like, "What the hell are you doing here?" Um, and and so then it became a much more interesting um, sort of road through because um, you know there was all sorts of expectations of failure, and and I, I won't speak to what was in my professors' minds. Um, I'm certain some of them appreciated the opportunity to teach me. I'm certain some of them may not have. Um, and, and I'm certain some of them may have wondered what was actually going on. Um, but I got to the end of my undergrad um, and, and I got to the end of my undergrad, got into a master's program. It took me six or seven tries to get into a master's program. Um, that's how many applications before I actually got let in. Um, and, uh, and then I was able to gain research experience. And one of the things that I realized doing research first for my master's and then for my PhD was that I was really, really, really good at it. Um, and I really enjoyed it, uh, that, that, that the, the, the puzzle of, um, of figuring out how to falsify a hypothesis, the puzzle of designing a hypothesis, designing a study around what, what to do with that hypothesis and how to test it. All of that was something that I genuinely appreciated. Um, and, and I got very good at it. And, and so bachelors begat masters, masters begat PhD. I went from molecular bio to, um, to molecular pharmacology, from molecular pharmacology to uh, cancer genetics, from cancer genetics to cancer genomics, then to experimental therapeutics, and then back to cancer genomics again. Um, before I left academic medicine in 2017, um, to come and, and do what's basically population data sciences and epidemiology and, and public health research um, in this phase of my career. And, and so um, was that easy? No. Um, was that a circular route or, or a very winding route? Absolutely, it was. Um, did I actually get the career that I thought that I was going to get at the end of it? Nope, I did not. Um, but it was, it was a journey worth pursuing, no matter how many people thought privately or otherwise that it wasn't um, or that I shouldn't have. Um, so, so not at all an, an easy road. It sounds very linear. I assure you it was not in the doing of it. Um, and, and it was also one of those things where, where during that road, I, I learned much like you learned from doing the searches that, that I actually was the first person who was born blind to actually do something like this um, because 
there were lots of people who were born blind who never made it in to the sciences at the university level. Um, and I got really interested in understanding why that was. Um, and I got really interested once I, once I started to understand why that was uh, in actually developing a whole secondary career around what to do about that. Um, and, uh, and, and that actually, that secondary career more than the primary career was actually what got me into the role that I have as director of research and chief inclusion accessibility officer at CNIB. Um, and, and so, so, you know, then I, I had to recognize that in doing that, that I was letting go of molecular biology and molecular genetics, um, but not really letting go of them. Right. Because, because there, there was, um, there were skills that, that one learns during one's PhD and, and one's postdocs that are ultimately translatable. Um, and, and by this point, I knew I was very good at research strategy. I knew I was very good at, at identifying and defining research problems and figuring out how to move things along. Um, and those are translatable skills and it almost doesn't matter the discipline. And so as long as I could, as long as I could figure out the science, the doing of the science became less of a challenge. And, and so, um, so, so that, that kind of transferability, if you will, got me, um, got me into the kind of spot that I'm in now doing the fun and cool and exciting stuff that I do. There, that's a, that's a great series of, of stories. And uh, yeah, you make it sound so linear and uh, that it was all easy and it doesn't sound like it necessarily was though. People are not <laughs> linear, life is not yeah, linear. Yeah. And, oh, and no. regardless of how we teach sure. it, science is not linear. For sure. And I can relate in the sense that, you know, I did a, a PhD in, in ocular pathology and end up leaving that and getting into business. And now I find myself back at something at the intersection of science and business. And I would not be able to do it without both those skill sets. And, you know, I thought when I was walking away from science as well, like, okay, well, I'm kind of saying goodbye to this. I just spent, a, you know, a 12 or 13 years of my life studying something that I'll never use again. And, but it, uh, it, it teaches a certain way of viewing the world and thinking and, and problem solving that um, is certainly uh, translatable in many cases. But so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on that a little yeah, bit, though, yeah. Sean, and and say that so so one of the interesting things I did as a PhD student was was um, I littered the University of Toronto with um, with entities that were started on my watch um, and activities that were started on my watch and and many of which are are still ongoing today that that I had helped found twenty some odd years ago. Um, and, uh, and one of them is, is an organization called the Life Sciences Career Development uh, Organization, um, which runs a, uh, an activity called the Life Sciences Career Development Series, um, which included a networking reception in those days. I think it still does. Um, and the funny thing about this networking reception, the first time we did it, I sat at a table um, with a bunch of grad students, and there was this one fifth-year PhD from molecular genetics who said, you know, I'm almost done, but I actually don't know what I'm going to do next, because the only thing I learned during my PhD was how to hold a pipette. Um, <laughs> and I kind of thought to myself that if, if that's all you've learned five years into doing a PhD, either you have a micromanagerial supervisor or you haven't been paying attention. Um, mm -hmm. Because the thing is that you have to give oral presentations. You have to sometimes supervise summer students. You have to write a proposal. You have to write papers. Um, you actually have to plan your experiments. You have to do stuff. You have to do a lot, lot of critical thinking. And if you're not aware that you're doing that critical thinking, then what actually are you doing, right? Um, because all of those skills are translatable. I, I, the reason I actually wanted to say this is because you said something about walking away from science. And, and one thing you'll never hear me say is that I walked away from science because I didn't, right? And, and I will push back vigorously and loudly on anyone who actually challenges me. Well, you're not in science. You're in the not-for-profit sector. What are you talking about science for? Um, and, and I've, I've also found members of the research community who are sort of like, well, you're not a, you're not a researcher, you're not a faculty member. Um, because my assistant professorship at Queens is, is adjunct, right? So, so, um, I'm, I'm the equivalent of clinical faculty. Um, and, and people will say, well, you're not a real faculty member. What do you know? Even if you have a PhD and, and my response to that is you want to look at my PubMed record. Um, and do you want to take me on in terms of research strategy and science? Like, are we going to play that game? Because if we play mm -hmm. the game, I'm happy to play it. Um, but I'm, I'm also not likely to lose it. And, and mm -hmm. that sounds horribly arrogant to say. Um, but, but one of the greatest issues that I had um, as, as, a, as a geneticist, as a researcher, is that 
in that space, people, I don't think, could really entertain the concept of a blind faculty member. Um, in disability studies, sure, and I don't, I don't mean to disparage disability studies, that's not the point. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, being someone who can become a faculty member is about research strategy, it's about team management, it's about budget, it's about grantsmanship, it's about writing papers, it's about collaboration. It's actually not about doing the stuff at the bench. Right. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and, and the absolutely bizarre thing is if you look at all of the uh, all of the ways that people get hired, you get hired on how many nature, salt and science papers you have, which is basically um, what are you doing at the bench and whether your boss can help you shape the paper into something that's a nature, salt science paper and how big is your collaborative network. Right. Um, and, and I actually had an interview at, at a school in Western Canada that I will not name. Um, where uh, one, of the, um, one of the members of the search committee, who I think to be fair, had their own favorite candidate, and it happened to be their former PhD student, um, and, and so no nepotism whatsoever, um, that, that person said to me, um, you know, you're, you're good, but, but you're, you're not, you're not going to be good here. And I said, well, why do you think that? And they said, well, you know, we can see your potential. We can see how far you can go, but because you're not there yet, you're not going to be good faculty. <laughs> and and so, kind so of an odd statement, isn't it? it, it, it well, it, I mean, compare that to the other Western Canada school that, that, that Google stalked me from day one um, and tried to get me to disclose my, my visual impairment. And I had one faculty member on that search committee say, you know, your postdoc publication in the Journal of Clinical Investigation had 38 authors on it. How much that was your work? Right. Meanwhile, of course, if you look any of the cancer genome atlas stuff up, you're going to find hundreds, if not thousands of authors on those publications and nobody asks those people. Right. So, so, I mean, can you prove that that's, that's, um, that's ableism? No. Can you prove that, that that's because I was blind and other candidates were not? No. Um, but I'm going to legitimately ask you, would you have asked that question of somebody else? Right. So, so, so if, if you say to me, you walked away from science, I will, I will actually say to you, absolutely not. I did not walk away from science because everything that, um, that I learned in terms of research strategy, in terms of informatics, in terms of data analysis, in terms of the, the rigor of doing research and, and the rigor of building a collaborative network and how to win grants and how to, how to get money and, and how to manage a team, I do all of that right now. It's just not what I was trained to do it in, not the technical training, um, but it's, it's still medical research and it's still high quality. And, and so, so I will cheerfully dare somebody to say otherwise. Fair enough. I'll watch, I'll watch my words. But yeah, no, no, when I, I'm saying I walk away from science, I, I, I love science my whole life as well. I've also, uh, I love science. I think my strength is more in, in, in business. Uh, and that's, and I've been able to kind of put those two together. Um, just a, a side, a sidebar. Um, you wouldn't know this either, but my sister is actually a visually impaired researcher um at uh university of ottawa um and having to navigate you know running a running a lab uh um trying to you know yeah. uh, apply for grants when these grants and stuff yeah. as a as someone who navigates around with a guide dog and yeah. and uh but um and that's an, that's an aside um so your research focus now like you you are doing some pretty interesting research um i read oh, through a, po a poster that would have been arvo as uh, an arvo poster i believe so arvo is for those who are listening who don't know, normally called the Association for Research in Vision and Ophthalmology, or my former mentor would call it the Association for Recreation and Vacation in Ophthalmology, because the meetings used to always be held in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, uh, these days it's Baltimore or San Francisco. Yeah, apparently. yeah, they rotate around. Yeah, so they used to always be in Fort Lauderdale, and I went about uh, six or seven times when they were in Fort Lauderdale. Um, and uh, but what went through that poster? Maybe you could just walk us through some of that, um, some of that latest research and the impetus to undertake. Is that the COVID nineteen poster? Yeah, yeah, that was exactly talking about the, um, uh, the how COVID nineteen. That was the one from this. Yeah, that was people. the one from yeah, this exactly. year, right? Okay. Yeah. So, so my research, uh, my research team at, at CNIB um, has a broad focus of understanding quality of life and social determinants of health metrics for people who are blind or partially sighted uh, or deafblind. Um, and so we, we expanded into dual sensory loss and, and that if you're gonna do that, that also means you're gonna take a look at people who are deaf or hard of hearing. Um, and, and so sensory disabilities broadly. Um, and, and so 
Um, so that means that, that we're very interested, of course, in, in, um, in access to health and social services. We're interested in uh, employment and education outcomes. We're interested in, in accessing and using technology and how technology may influence social services, health services, education, and employment. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, we got very interested in understanding how this, this massive discontinuity in our lives um, actually would impact the lived experience of people who are blind or partially sighted because, because now we've got, um, we've got a pandemic that requires us to socially distance or physically distance. Um, guide dogs don't know what physical distancing means. So, so you know, if, if that's the case, then you wouldn't expect that, you know, um, that someone who's a guide dog user is going to be able to physically distance effectively. Many of the tactile markers on, on floors are, um, or sorry, many of the markers on floors, the physical distancing markers on floors are not tactile. And so if you're a cane user, you have no idea where they are, right? And, and so, so the obvious question then is, is what's the impact of COVID-19 on all of this? And so, so the pillars of my research department um, are, are very much sort of education, employment, um, health and social services, and COVID-19, uh, three basic pillars. Right, um, and so the question, the questions that we ask are all around. Well, you know, what happens in each of these three environments um, for people who are blind or partially sighted? Uh, the other thing that I would say is, is because I, I, I run two departments at CNIB. I, I run the inclusion and accessibility, the idea team, the inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility team, and the research team. Um, what we do, or or what I strive for, and 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 it it's it's a piece of work. It's not it's not um, it's not intuitive for a lot of people to do this. Um, what I strive to do is make sure that the research that we that we do impacts um, the the inclusive workplace principles that my idea team is building, and that the whole notion of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility is, is taken into consideration in the doing of research. That second one, especially, is a lot harder than you might think. Um, because a lot of researchers will, will default to, to just thinking about research in isolation as a very reductionist sort of thing and will not think about, particularly human participant related research, um, will not actually think about how to, how to engage in inclusive ways. I've seen a few publications where people have actually written in, um, in their methods section, um, this survey was not provided to people who are blind or partially sighted because we don't know how to make the survey accessible. Right. This is 2021. That's not an excuse. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and there's people who know how to do it. All you need to do is call them. Right. Um, or look them up and you can find me on the CNIB website kind of thing. Right. Um, and, and so, so there's, there's, there's this sort of reductionist notion that's out there. And, and I actually saw this in, in a paper that had to do with a medical device approval. Um, and, you know, it was a medical device that could have, been impacting the lives of people with disabilities, people with vision loss. And, and, um, and, and so nobody tested this medical device in a population of people with sensory impairments because at the end of the day, they didn't know how to do it. And so, so they wrote the disclaimer that because we don't know how to do it, this is not intended for. Um, and, and the fact that you don't know how to do something as a researcher, and that happens to be your, 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 um, your exclusion criterion, that's shoddy research. I mean, come on. Right, and and so so how you do inclusive research is something that um, that that my team and practically my team only, and I'm going to say something horribly arrogant here, but I, I genuinely mean it. Um, my team and my team only, you know, will be able to do because we have um, we have the idea principles living cheek by jowl, if you will, with the research methodology, and vice versa. Right, and and so so that that counts for something, um, and so so the kind of work that we do ranges. I think it depends on the questions that we're asking. Um, I would love longitudinal studies. I'd love um, I'd love to be able to sort of you know follow people uh, through uh, life courses and and interventions and and understand what happens beginning, middle, and after. The problem is that those kinds of studies need lots and lots of resources. Um, and frankly, haven't, we haven't been able to get that kind of money as yet. A lot of what we're doing instead is, is kind of the point in time cross-sectional study. So, um, so, so we've, we've got a large funded project right now on, on understanding inclusive workplaces and what makes workplaces inclusive, which sounds very social science-y, um, but there's, there's a lot of sort of occupational health related in there. There's, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of population data science related in there. Um, there's, there's a lot of sort of, um, you know, 
thinking about um, thinking about how health policy and workplace policy interact in there. Um, we've got other work that we've done, um, like I said, on, on the impact of COVID-19. And, and here, because of the pandemic, we have been able to try to do something a bit longitudinal um, and try to understand kind of the impact of the pandemic at the beginning last year, April, March of this year, June, July of this year, we have another survey coming out in October, November of this year. And, and so, so we're able to, to do some time courses, we're able to do some, um, let's, let's think about how this is going to work um, and, and how we're able to do, um, how, how we're able to understand kind of what that lived experience is. Um, and, and we ask the question always sort of from the place of if, if we can understand the lived experience, can we then ultimately um, figure out ways to improve it, enhance it, modify it, um, you know, and, and so, so that, that's, that's what the department does. It is, it is, um, it is applied translational. Um, it is kind of, uh, person-oriented, a different kind of clinical, um, but it's still important research um, and, and it's very valuable work uh, that frankly nobody else has done to this point. Yeah, no, that's, no, that's interesting. The, uh, um, I have a question, I might come back to it if we have time, but the, I wanted to ask you first about the initiative, uh, one of many initiatives is the, the Building an Inclusive uh, Life Sciences Future um, I think this is an Ontario, Canada-based focus. I could be wrong, but I think it involves workshops. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the impetus behind that and, and what the goals of that are. I can't talk too much about it. That's that's a project that's that's under development and and something that I'm serving on on the advisory committee for. It, it was a piece of work that Shift Health and, and Life Sciences Ontario have commissioned. Um, last year, uh, Shift Health had approached me about sitting in on a panel that, that had to do with um, idea, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility in the sciences. And, and I tend to get recommended for these things because of my expertise in accessibility of science education and, and um, my accessibility, my, my background in, in accessibility of science and accessibility of healthcare. I get recommended for these things as ironically enough, a scientist with a disability. Um, and, uh, and, and when I get recommended for these things, I usually will, will vet them and say yes. And so I did that this time. And, and we had this panel discussion uh, in October of 2020. Uh, it was virtual during the pandemic. Um, and it was a discussion on how important it was to pay attention to idea principles in science. But the thing with those kinds of conversations is you have, a, you have a 90 minute panel discussion. And at the end of 90 minutes, we all agree on something that we knew we were gonna agree on before. Um, but people are gonna say, well, okay, you've talked about how it's important, but, and you've also talked about why it's important. Can you tell me how to do it? Um, and, and I mean, the how to do it is the hard part, right? Um, and, uh, and there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. There's answers that, that may or may not work over time, but we're, we're so young in the space that, that we don't really know. Um, the other thing that people will usually say is how do we get people to buy into it because they don't understand the business case, right? And, and so, so the how-to and the, the, the what's the business case for, um, you know, those tend to be longer conversations than a 90-minute panel. And, and, and thinking back on it, I think that that's where the idea to do um, the, the Building an Inclusive Life Sciences Future in Ontario project came about. It came about because it, it needed to be... Um, there needed to be something more than just, hey, let's have a panel. I've been on enough panels. I, I, I'm on panels every so often, right? Um, I get invited to them um, and, and lots of people have them and they're great and they're wonderful. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm here in, in a position where I, 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 wanna, I wanna make sure that the next generation of people who are doing science, who are coming in um, with a disability or who acquire a disability in the doing of the science, um, and, and not just disability, but also, you know, members of our indigenous communities and, and members of, of, um, of a variety of ethnic groups and, and, you know, people of color and people who are black and um, people who are gender diverse and, and people who are first gen immigrants and, you know, everybody. Um, we want to make sure that, that everyone's got the ability to participate and the ability to engage to the fullest extent. And, and um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. I was an undergrad in 1994, 1995. And in 94... Um, the, the absolute number of people with sight loss who went into a college or university education um, was nationally some number of thousands. And I don't remember off the top of my head exactly what it was. Um, but here's, here's the bizarre thing. In 2020, that absolute number did not increase. 
right? Over the course of 25 years, the absolute number of people who were blind or partially sighted who went into a post-secondary education had not changed. What did change was the numbers of people who were coming forward with learning disabilities and, um, and mental health disabilities and neurodiversity. And so the proportion of people who were blind or partially sighted in post-secondary education, which used to be relatively high, actually fell off. It's, it's now less than 5%. Um, and, and so what, what that tells me is that over 25 years advances in technology, right? Over 25 years, including the invention of the smartphone and the tablet, pieces of technology that are supposed to impact how people who are blind or partially sighted actually interact with the world had nothing to do with the number of people making it into post-secondary education. So, so that means one of two things. It means either that the number of people who made it into post-secondary education was already capped out and could never increase. I don't believe that. That's not true because I know of a lot of people um, who basically say high school is hell, I'm done, right? Um, and, or what we've done in terms of technological advancement hasn't translated to um, the, the engagement of students with disabilities because technology hasn't been the barrier, attitudes have been the barrier. And, and so, so if, if you take a data point like that and, and then you say, well, all right, how are we going to um, improve the inclusion of, of life sciences um, uh, and the ecosystem of life sciences uh, in not just Ontario, but all of Canada, I, th I think you have to start to say, this isn't, this isn't an issue of there's people, why aren't we hiring them? The issue is there aren't people, but even when, we, when we're able to foster people within the system, we need to have an environment that is inclusive to them so that we can then get them into a space they can be hired into inclusive environments. But we don't have those inclusive environments. So we need to start having this conversation anyway. Um, and that's at least part of what we hope to achieve. Uh, that's interesting. Talking about the just the inclusive work environment in general, um, I touched on this in a previous episode with um, a guest named Laura Allen. She's the head of accessibility at Google uh, in the U.S. And we d uh, dove into this topic a little bit in that episode. And uh, she's definitely a, you know a champion for for um, some of these same principles um, at Google. Um, I guess that there's a lot. <laughs> Google's only one place, though, right? There's a lot of a lot of places that need to start. Uh, um, champing some some of these um, perspectives and policies. I want to say this, you know, when we think about things like accessibility, often it becomes let's make the building accessible or let's make the information accessible. Um, but it isn't it isn't about the structure. It's about the environment. It's about the attitudes. It's about the people, right? Um, you know, if if you if you have a boss who says I don't need to make this document accessible because Sean's never going to read it right? Then your boss has got the wrong attitude. Yeah, fair, fair. Because you don't know if Sean's ever going to read it or not. What happens if mm -hmm. one of Sean's colleagues gives it to Sean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, that makes um, a lot of sense. And, and so, so, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, everyone says the medium is the message. Thank you, Marshall McLuhan. Um, and and that, that's, that's part of it, right? But it, it's, it's also the, the how, not just the what, right? And, and honestly, the way you make math accessible isn't just by providing a braille textbook of math, it's actually by teaching the concepts in ways that somebody can relate to, right? How are you gonna teach probability using, well, actually here, here's a really good example, right? You're gonna teach probability and, and often if you think back to, well, in my day, they called it finite mathematics. Um, Often when they did finite math, you, you, you taught probability by a roll of a dice, uh, by, sorry, the roll of a die, um, uh, or the roll of dice, plural, or you taught probability using a deck of playing cards, right? Somebody who's congenitally blind, right, who has never actually played with something other than a tactile playing card, and, and if they don't have access to a tactile playing card, then, then that's, that's an even better example. Right? How are they going to understand probability in the context of a deck of playing cards if they never use the deck of playing cards? Right? Mm -hmm. so, so you can write a textbook that's all about probability that talks about playing cards every five pages, right? And you can put that book in Braille, but that's meaningless if the person's never interacted with a deck of cards. Fair, yeah. That makes right? Sense. Here's another example. You want to go back to high school physics. How do, you, how do people teach the Doppler effect? Right? People teach the Doppler effect, which for the audience and, and those who have, have not encountered the term, the Doppler effect is, is the 
um, rising and lowering in pitch of uh, a sound as it moves closer to and farther away from you, right? Um, as an object comes towards you, the sound waves are compressed. As an object moves away from you, the sound waves are, are lengthened. And so, so the, the rising and lowering of the pitch happens. That's, that's true for any kind of wave. It's true for sound. It's true for light. It's true for any, like it's true for water waves. It's true for waves in, in all sorts of medium. Um, and, and so the interesting thing is that when, when you learn the Doppler effect in high school, there's one way that you learn it for the most part. You learn it by, um, by going through an exercise where you watch a video of a train moving towards you and then away from you, or an ambulance moving towards you and then away from you with a siren on, right? Now, if A, you never grew up around a train, and I grew up on the island of Barbados, there's no train there, right? Or B, you're actually deaf or congenitally, or like if, if you're deaf on, on one side, so, so you lose audio positioning or you're deaf on both sides, so you can't hear anything, period. Um, then those approaches aren't gonna work to you. Um, right before the pandemic, I did something um, at a university uh, in the GTA where I got together with a bunch of science faculty and I actually gave this example. And I said, how would you actually teach the Doppler effect? And would you know a room full of physics profs couldn't come up with an alternative answer? <laughs> but it's, I, I would also believe that because they probably haven't spent time really thinking about how do I teach it. They just, they want to teach the majority, but not to everybody, right? Well, so. no, they, it, it's also about teaching the way that, that, that you know how to teach. And at the end of the mm -hmm. day, inclusive teaching um, and, and inclusive education is about putting yourself in the frame of reference of the other person. It's not about, um, it's not about how you know how to do this. It's about thinking about how to do this. If you sit in that other person's frame of reference, if somebody can't see, um, the same way that you can, then can you explain things so that they're able to understand them tactilely or audio or, or whatever, right? Um, and, and if somebody can't hear, can you explain things differently for, for the Doppler effect thing? Nobody thought of the slinky, right? Um, <laughs> and, and, and yet a slinky, you can use it to create waves. It, it, you can stretch it out, you can push it together. And, and a slinky would be a very good tactile demonstration of the Doppler effect. Nobody thought about it until I mentioned it. No, it makes a lot of sense. So it's not just the, I'm going to make this an accessible format. It, it's about thinking about the concepts and how you're teaching them. Yeah, but, oh, that makes, makes a lot of sense. But listen, I mean, I, I've taken a lot of your time today. We should definitely do a round two because we, you know, we got through about uh, half of the questions I think that we wanted to cover. But uh, if you'd be open to it, maybe we I, can, I'm uh, totally open to scheduling a round two. Excellent. Listen, you know, Dr. Sky, this is, it's, it's really been a pleasure. You've, uh, you've given me some food for thought um, as well. So uh, I'm going to take some of these thoughts away and hopefully the audience um, has learned something from this as well. And uh, we look forward to having you back for, for round two to dive into some more topics. Absolutely. I look forward to it, Sean. All right. Thank you. Tom. Thank you.